This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is C-Y-K-I-A-E. In my last program, I talked about the discovery that although a lot of behavior of animals and humans may be wired in, often it has to be triggered by a parent, etc., before it starts to operate. One instance of this that I talked about in the last program is cats that are taken off their mothers too soon. They will never learn how to climb down from a tree. Then there were Susan Minetka's tame monkeys wild monkeys and a snake. The tame monkeys didn't know what a snake was and that they had to be afraid of it for good reason. Like if a snake bites them they will die. After a brief time with wild monkeys that were shown a snake and went berserk at the sight the tame monkeys learned to match the behavior of the wild monkeys forever after. After that brief exposure to how wild monkeys behave. The tame monkeys were immediately and totally equipped to deal with snakes. Then there are the male snakes of the Me Too controversy. It turned out that many of the men and women involved in that controversy were both like the tame monkeys. The women hadn't been socialized to deal with the behavior of that kind by men and many of the men weren't equipped to deal with those women who didn't want that sort of attention. Go figure. In the last program, I played an excerpt from an interview that John Anderson did with Mary Eberstadt. She's a writer and research fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute in Washington. In her book, Primal Fear, she wrote about the Me Too movement in the context of what this research revealed relevant to human relations and how we managed them. She made this comment about the behavior of many of the women who were caught up as victims, although for many reasons that I'm about to explore, that isn't perhaps an appropriate description of their status. They're maybe not victims she had this to say. But I think it showed us something else. In case after case, you had these um, women, the product of elite universities in elite fields like 
Hollywood, journalism, et cetera, coming forward to say that these men had done terrible things. That is to say, these young women, no matter how well-educated, had apparently been sent into the world without ever having been told, don't go to a man's hotel room at two in the morning, even if he is your boss, or especially if he is your boss. <clears throat> There's a kind of common sense knowledge that is lacking uh, out there that's very visible when you read through these accounts of depredation. And to say that is not, <clears throat> excuse me, to say that is not to judge any individual case. It's just to observe that there has been a descent of social knowledge about the opposite sex. How did this happen? It happened partly because with so many fatherless homes out there, how are boys or girls supposed to know what an adult man is about for better or worse? And with so many small homes, so many broken families, smaller families, there are just fewer people from whom to learn. In her book, Primal Scream, Mary Eberstadt, following on from the story of the monkeys and the snake, says that social learning is taught by others of one's kind. She wrote, Surely that fact explains why, when the first stories of Me Too came pouring out, many more followed, and a cultural backdraft exploded across the Western world. Why hadn't these stories been told in the first place? Maybe because a critical mass of women hadn't learned from anywhere else. Home, fathers, brothers, mothers, cousins, uncles, grandparents, and others with their best interests in mind. That predatory men are to be avoided when possible, and called out if they transgress. Instead, the victims of the Me Too learned this by watching the revelations of other women. They learned mimetically, as adults, what they had not learned or been taught, for whatever reason, of faulty social transmission belts earlier on. Plainly, legions of highly educated young women are being launched into society and the paid marketplace with little protective gear. It is surely not a random fact that many are also increasingly bereft of father protectors, men to whom they could have turned in time of trouble, men who could potentially blunt the designs of harassers and abusers, or even just men or women who could have acted as reality checks by suggesting that some behaviours might be over the line and should be reported. Throughout the unfolding sex scandals, there was no mention of fathers or brothers or male cousins of those afflicted women, men in their familial corner, fending off or seeking to right the wrongs done to them. There were a few mentions of boyfriends playing a protective role. Very few. That too is remarkable. True enough, many women have been socialized ideologically to believe that they need no protection at all. But as Me Too ironically demonstrates, this is a risky bet. So long as women are far more likely to be raped, so long as they are overwhelmingly and on balance the physically weaker sex, 
And so long as they bear primary responsibility for the draining experience of childbirth and the greater load of child-rearing, as anyone with a modicum of sanity knows they do, for all these reasons, it will remain in their interests to ally with other, stronger, less physically constrained fellow humans, typically men. Popular culture and behavioral studies ratify what left-wing ideology denies. In the popular country song, Cleaning This Gun, Come On In, Boy, singer Rodney Atkins imagines a father doing just that as a young man arrives to take his daughter out. Throughout what's implied is that the latent factor of superior force will shape the boy's behavior toward that daughter for the better. In much the same way that ecologists in South Africa's Pillensburg Park found in 2000 that introducing several older bull elephants was all that it took to stop the younger male elephants already there from lethal rampaging against rhinoceroses. Many human beings, it seems, now lack the paralleled implied force that keep those rambunctious younger elephants in line. In some, Me Too suggests that the world after the sexual revolution is one in which many women, thanks to family shrinkage and breakup, have fewer ties to men who are not potential predators, in which many men, thanks to the same forces, have little or no intimate but non-sexual knowledge of the opposite sex, and unsound sexual tutelage in the form of pornography, in which fundamental truths about disparities of size and strength are denied for ideological reasons, and in which the question of romantic identity, for many, is confounded by all of the above. The miracle was that the Me Too movement happened at all. It shouldn't have, because if a woman is looking for guidance about how she should live her life in relation to men, and she doesn't have a mother, there's a good chance she's going to look to the feminist movement, which can be problematical because most people don't know about its background, only what it has to say. Feminism actually started through the evangelical Christian movement, principally the temperance movement, trying to restrict access to, or better still, to ban alcohol. The body Women's Christian Temperance Union began in the United States in 1874. It spread to Australia in 1882. Its program included as issues ones that will sound familiar today. Equal pay, free kindergartens in inner-city suburbs, addressing domestic violence and dealing with sexual abuse. Christianity has brought us universities, schools, science, courts accessible to everyone in society, and everyone was equal, as Paul told us in about 60 AD in Galatians 3.28. That was really revolutionary. But whenever someone comes up with something good, someone else will move in and copy it and claim it as their own. Today, the feminist movement is an arm of the communists, under whatever name they go under, but that ideology. 
That movement didn't just start in the mid-1800s. It goes back well before Karl Marx. Probably the most prominent promoter of communism was Plato when he wrote his book The Republic in 375 BC. Igor Shafarevich, one of the leading mathematicians of the 20th century, who lived in Stalinist Russia and after Stalin's death, wrote a book called The Socialist Phenomenon. He said communism was a death cult, which it definitely is. Anyway, one part of communism is the belief that women are common property and that the family needs to be abolished. I'll suggest in this program that that view is not one that is actually shared by most women. But what would I know? I'm one of the other genders. So modern feminism, first and foremost, serves the aim of the communists, which means promoting women to behave like men. That is not hardwired in behaviour for most women. Of course, there are always exceptions. Louise Perry, in her book The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, talks about this, about modern feminism redirecting women to behave like men. She says this, In the first ever episode of Sex and the City, aired in 1998, the Manhattanite columnist, socialite and every woman, Carrie Bradshaw, resolves to stop looking for Mr. Perfect and start enjoying herself. In that effort, she hooks up with an ex-boyfriend, a self-centred withholding creep, to whom she no longer has any emotional attachment. She drops around at his place mid-afternoon, enjoys his offer of oral sex, and then leaves before he's had a chance to orgasm himself. Ignoring her disgruntled ex, Carrie tells us of her delight. As I began to get dressed, I realised that I'd done it. I just had sex like a man. I left feeling powerful, potent, and incredibly alive. I felt like I owned the city. Nothing and no one could get in my way. In the hit TV show The Fall, aired in the mid-2010s, the gorgeous police superintendent Stella Gibson also relishes the chance to have sex like a man. Recently arrived in a new city where she has been tasked with investigating a series of murders, she spots a hunky sergeant, her junior both in rank and in age, and invites him back to her hotel for sex. Discovering later that the man is married, Gibson is ostentatiously unconcerned, justifying her sexual adventurousness with a quote from the feminist Catherine McKinnon. Man has sex with woman, subject, verb, object. The implication is clear. This woman has sex back. This is how women get empowered. They have sex like men, purely for pleasure, seeking nothing more than the experience of the moment. So should the Me Too incidents ever have amounted to anything? Everyone involved was empowered. Everyone was equally powerful. The sisterhood, Carrie Bradshaw and Stella Gibson, they're telling women to have sex in this way. But Louise Perry says women, most women, there are always exceptions, don't want to have sex like a man. They're looking for an enduring, meaningful relationship. It seems to me, as a mere male, 
that the feminist view is wrong on so many levels, and I believe that a lot of women would agree with me. The Irish feminist organisation, RAG, Revolutionary Anarcha Feminist, wrote, One of the misconceptions of the feminist movement has been that for women to be equal to men, we must be the same. But that's what this women having loveless sex is all about, being the same as men. Like the monkey with the snake, a woman having casual, meaningless sex with many men, often totally unknown, isn't a great idea for women for so many reasons, and more so for women who grew up in fatherless homes especially. I'm going to suggest that this totally wrong doctrine of feminism is one of the reasons why girls need a household with their biological parents. Young girls living in their adult mother's home with a stepdad or a live-in boyfriend lover are about 11 times more likely to be sexually, physically or emotionally abused than children living with their married biological parents, as revealed in the 2010 Fourth National Incidence Study of Child Abuse and Neglect in America. Young girls in that situation have been found to start menstruating two years earlier than is usually the case. The stranger is potentially a sex partner. Their body, regardless of what they're thinking, is telling them, step up. Women having sex with strangers comes with all sorts of dangers that men don't face when they're with women as casual sex partners. A chilling fact that Louise Perry quotes is, but the unwelcome truth will always remain, whether or not we can bear to look at it, almost all men can kill almost all women with their bare hands, and not vice versa. And that matters. Leslie Perry rounds off her view of women having loveless sex like men by saying that it's not empowering. Men and women are not the same, either physically or psychologically. Casual heterosexual sex inherently carries much greater risks for women and in return for much meaner rewards. And yet the perfectly reasonable insistence that women should be allowed to have meaningless sex back without suffering criminalization or social ostracization slips all too easily towards the insistence that they therefore ought to. Carrie Bradshaw and Stella Gibson are crucially aspirational characters, attractive, glamorous and professionally successful. Their model is one that we are supposed to follow, and Scutino encourages her readers to do so. I don't doubt that there are some women who genuinely enjoy casual sex, and who decide, having weighed the risks and benefits, that it is in their best interest to pursue it. What I question is the claim that a culture of casual sex is somehow of benefit to women as a group. In another part of her book, she writes, Thus it seems that what the phrase having sex like a man really means, at least in these popular representations, is having sex like an asshole. More materially to the Me Too movement, Louise Perry cynically wraps up saying, 
When a sexual encounter turns out to be not ideal, or worse, well then we must fall back on liberal feminism's owed standby. Teach men not to rape. Mary Eberstadt, in her book Primal Scream, comes to the conclusion based on how the tame monkey learned from wild monkeys to fear snakes, that as more and more women came out about their Me Too experience, other women then felt empowered to do likewise. Mimetic victimhood is the big word that she used. The bottom line from this and the last program is that children not brought up by their biological parents are going to suffer. In the next program, I'll tell you more about that. Thanks for listening into this program, CYKIAE. If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast on my CYKIAE, Spotify, Apple, Google, and many other podcast sites. Just look at my program details on Cairns FM 89.1 for clickable links. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Gafcon Northern Hope Anglican Church at the Cairns and District Junior Estedford Hall, 67 Greenslopes Street, Edge Hill, some Sunday at 9am. If you liked this program, you should definitely listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone, also available as a podcast on those same sites. Search Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close brackets.